send them off. All right, if you would please open to 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're picking up on the second half of this chapter. Uh, Jordan led us very well, and he preached a really good word last week uh, to help us understand God's heart for the church as it's gathered, but there's some instructions that are coming in this second chapter of this, uh, the second paragraph of this chapter that we're going to dive into today. All right, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. The Word of God says, I desire, this is the Apostle Paul, remember he's speaking, I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. This will be fun. <laughs> Let no pointing fingers. Men, let's pray. <laughs> Lord, we just we want to know your heart. And God, I ask for your heart to be felt among us, that we would understand your word, and that, God, we would, we would understand how we're to be a church that glorifies you and glorifies you for the witness of the saving of men and women and children who are on a journey to hell if they don't repent. God, we want to be a window into your glory so they see it and they join us and you save them. Holy Spirit, we need your illumination, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What I think is happening in this paragraph is Paul is describing for the church how as the church interacts as men and women in the church, it opens a window. Think about a window into the church, then opens a window into the heavens to see God as he is. These verses are some of the most difficult and most misunderstood verses in the entire Bible. And when we read Scripture, we, we most easily apply the filter of our experiences and our culture to what we're reading. And if we're not careful to make sure that we understand the original intent and the original audience, we'll be left to conclude something possibly very different than what was originally written. At first read, we think these are crazy verses from an ancient, archaic society that needs really just to be thrown out. It reinforces opinions that the Bible is just filled with a bunch of weird rules and it demeans women and highlights and preserves a patriarchal society. These verses don't seem to fit well with our woke culture, do they? Or do they? That's what we really have to ask this morning. In reality, the Bible is a very woke book. Very. And we're going to see that 
as we journey through these verses. You know the reason we elevate women today in our society? And, and like no other time in human history is because of the Bible. We have a woke culture because we have a woke God who says, here's how I want you to interact as men and women in, uh, among my creation. I have this book I've been going through called Dominion. I forget the author. I meant to look his name up. But he's an atheist from Ireland, around my age, mid-40s. And he wrote an entire book. He's a PhD historian, and he studies ancient civilizations. And what he recognized was these ancient civilizations have a lot to thank to the people of God in those situations for interacting with one another and setting an example for the society on how they're supposed to treat men and women. So here's an atheist saying, we have a woke society because God was there telling his people how to interact with one another. These verses contain both cultural reasonings that are specific to the church that was gathered there in Ephesus, but they also contain eternal principles that are defined application in the ongoing work of God spreading his kingdom through his church and by his church. The principles are to continue to show up in every generation of the church. This paragraph is the continuation of Paul's thought earlier in the chapter of why the church is to gather. The church is to gather so everybody sees Jesus because recognize God's heart. His desire is for everybody to be saved. So he wants his church to gather for that purpose. And here in this paragraph, Paul is admonishing the church to make sure nothing gets in the way of seeing Jesus' exaltation, that nothing gets in the way of seeing Jesus. Jesus restores our relationship with God that sin marred and twisted. And Jesus reorders our hearts with God, our relationship with one another, and our relationship with creation. And here we as the church get to be the window that a lost and dying world looks into to see God's order, to see his person. Now our role as men and women in the church serve to preserve the truth of the gospel so others will see Jesus' redemption and get in on it. We want to live lives that are attractive, gospel attraction, where people see something about us and say, I've got to have that. The way that you're living, the way that you respond to life, it's different. I don't, I don't understand it. I need it. I need to get in on it. It's the attractiveness that our lives should be displaying. All right, let's have some fun. First point is this. As Paul is addressing the men and then the women, is he, he's reminding them, keep your eyes on the prize. Paul's admonition to men and women while they're at church is meant to keep everyone's eyes on Jesus because he's the reason we come together. He tells the men, don't be divisive. And he's going to tell the women, don't be distracting. So we are to have men who come to church that are men of integrity. Paul tells them to lift holy hands. Now, this is not a command for it was cultural for men to lift their hands like this when they prayed. But that's not making sure that every man, when he prays, has to do that. Because even in Scripture, we find different expressions of prayer on their knees, prone, completely face down, on, on belly. This command is an inward command for heart posture. 
Paul wants the men to make sure they're not proud in their own self-assessment as they come to church. See, men get angry and they quarrel and they argue when they don't feel respected. Paul is telling them not to bring this into their relationship with God because it will distract them from the prize that Jesus is. Scripture is clear that our pride will get in the way of our prayers. Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart and does not lift his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Mark eleven twenty five. 25, Jesus said, And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. And 1 Peter 3, 7, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you, equal with you of the grace of life. Listen, gentlemen, so that your prayers may not be hindered. I'm scared of that verse. I'm not loving my wife well. God doesn't answer my prayers, and so I can't be walking around all confused. just don't know what I'm supposed to do. I'm praying. I just don't hear God answering. God's looking at me possibly saying, love your wife better, because that's more primary. Don't bring your pride into that relationship, or, or if you don't feel respected, don't bring that pride into your relationship with God. Don't Don't miss the prize that Jesus is. So we want to have prayers that are lifted with holy hands, holy humbleness, holy self-sacrifice, men of integrity who possess a holy humility and a holy honesty, men who don't seek to exalt themselves but focus on Christ. Then he addresses the women to be modest, and he's doing it in the same way. A key to understanding Paul's train of thought is the word likewise in verse 9. He's not going after some form and appearance so as to establish a rule that you're thinking, "Uh uh-oh, I wore braided hair three weeks ago. That's not good. He said, I can't do that anymore. No, that, that was a specific situation he's speaking into that they understood. We don't have the same cultural expression that, that applies to. He pointed men to the heart. Now he's pointing women to the heart. He wants women to have a heart posture that doesn't fog up the window to see Jesus. Their style and their motivation while they were coming to church and how they were dressed was fogging up the window. The point was not for women to be non-woman in their appearance, but for them to recognize that the lasting jewels are not the ones that you put on, They're the ones that come from within by the Holy Spirit himself. The women Paul is admonishing, admonishing, they went too far in their jewelry and their clothing. And thereby they distracted people from the real reason we're at church. We weren't seeing Jesus clearly. As the women drifted from the heart toward how they looked, from the heart toward God to now having a heart toward how they looked, they veered into what is not proper. They may have been seeking to show off their wealth or to mimic a wealth. In doing so, they drifted into immodesty. They became sensual in their appearance. And as a dad of a lot of daughters, I know what it's like when women try to go to the store and come home with nothing. 
because they're trying to be modest. We live in a culture that one of the most irritating things ever for me, and this is, I have to, I have to understand where it's coming from because we have, we have a schizophrenic culture that says women shouldn't be demeaned, but yet we have all these categories where women are being demeaned in clothing styles, in music categories. Don't treat women as objects. Oh, you can treat them as objects with what they wear and what, what songs we're going to sing about them. It's ludicrous. But the church is to be that shining light to see so people can look in and see Jesus. Ladies, in your desire for modesty means a lot of a lot of shopping trips. I understand that. And look, it's okay for women to be fashionable and to care about their appearance, to care about their hair. As long as they embrace it, it this it's to embrace your role as a woman. In, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul's telling the Corinthian church, hey, make sure the women look like women and the men look like men. It, it needs to be discernible. And in our culture where we accept everything, now more than ever, you're looking at somebody you can't really tell. It's confusing the genders. You know, interestingly for uh, young teenage girls, gender dysphoria has replaced bulimia and anorexia as the number one problem. Having such a, an inward focus of trying to figure out who they are, they're now playing with gender to try to figure out who they are. Not just be skinny enough. But our culture, because it's in us, we don't feel adequate, we don't feel loved, and so we crave things and change things to try to change our experience of that love. But modesty is what catches the eye, not flashiness. And ladies, you know you're dressed for other ladies. You don't dress for men. You know that. It's competition that was happening in the church. Men competing for respect and ladies competing for attention. It was improper. It was improper for those who profess godliness, improper for men and women who, wanted, who want Jesus to be seen more than anything. And the ladies may have been trying to acquire a status from within the church because you've got poor people coming into the church, and this is the first time in, in culture that the rich and the poor are able to be in the same place and not throw each other out. It could be that somebody who is poor is trying to gain a status well, without recognizing that no, my status is in Christ. It's not by the acceptance that I get when I show up to church. A woman's dress should coincide with her surrender to God and her desire to have all eyes on him. Susan Hunt says, women should have a sanctified sense of appropriateness. It's very wise. Now, as we move through, we get to verses 11 and 12, which are the, the meaty ones. Now, again, I think in looking through this window, we see a glimpse of the Godhead. In the big caption in the next set of verses, very complicated, need to be careful with, but it's God's order for his people so the whole universe can see the glory that he has as he relates as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So our relationships as men and women in the church and in the home, they give us a window and a glimpse into how God operates as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
Here's the most woke thing you can ever see in the New Testament. Verse 11, let a woman learn. That was very countercultural when they heard it. Because within the Greco-Roman world, within the Jewish community, women weren't allowed to learn. There was a rabbinic saying that said, the words of the Torah, the first five books of the, the Old Testament, the law, the words of the Torah are better to be burned than to be trusted by a woman or entrusted to a woman. They looked down upon women. Women were considered second class, second rate. Women were not educated because they thought it was a waste of time. When Paul tells the women to learn, he's bucking against everything that was culturally normal, culturally expected, and accepted. He elevates the status of women. And where does he do it? In the church. So we can see God. This growing recognition is the reason we have woke society at all. It's due to God's covenant with his people. The Old Testament law was countercultural. 4,000 uh, 4, years ago, as it was introduced among the Hammurabi Code that the ancient uh, East, the ancient Near East used for everything. The Old Testament law comes in, the Torah, and it comes in as countercultural to the Hammurabi Code. And, uh, code. and what it was doing, the biggest difference and the biggest countercultural aspect was that it was giving dignity to men and women. Where the Hammurabi Code did not. Treated people as property. And this passage was countercultural 2,000 years ago when it was written. Hear this, church. God is pro-woman. He is. But then, now I want us to we, we let a woman learn, because usually it's the quiet submissiveness that we get caught up with. Let a woman learn. But look, there's a posture here, quiet submission. Again, this is not meant to muzzle women in the church. This is meant to point them to their hearts. There was a heart disposition to learning. There must have been a particular situation or pattern that the women or a woman was doing in, in Ephesus that warranted this type of specificity. Like, hey, make sure she stops doing that. It's probably what they heard because they knew the category that Paul was speaking into. But what we see from there, what, what is that generational repetition is a woman should be respectful, quiet in her disposition, not, not aggressive in taking hold of what is to be learned. Now, listen, men are called to do the same thing. 1 Corinthians 14, remember when Paul's telling the church everything needs to be in order? Like you're having everybody talk at the same time? That's not helpful because everybody can't hear. Got to be able to do one at a time. They were to learn in a way that, again, didn't bring attention upon themselves, but pointed to Jesus. And he tells them there's an exercise of authority within the church that needs to be protected. Verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Within the expression of quiet submission for women is the church, in the church is the embracing of God's role for men and women. Paul gives one prohibition to women in the church. They're not to teach or exercise authority over man. 
that read, you got to take the teach and exercise authority as, as really one concept. It means be respectful of God's order. Paul's reason for this doesn't rest in a cultural application or contextualization as if it was only an Ephesian problem. He said he doesn't use the names right here of the people in the church, like, hey, they need to get along this way. Where does he go? He goes to Adam and Eve. So he goes outside of their immediate context to God's context as he created the world. In God's wise design of man and woman, made in his image, he didn't create them at the same time, which he could have done. He wanted to express something in the order of creation. He created man to serve God. He creates woman to serve man. Both are equal in image and value and worth and dignity. Both of men and women, we are image bearers. That's why any attempt to mar that image is, is dehumanizing, not discovering ourselves. Somebody who, who is battling with their gender assigned at birth to try to figure out, is that really me? They're actually dehumanizing themselves rather than embracing who God's called them to be to fulfill this is right and good and blessed. While both are equal in image and value, one is before the other. Firstness in Scripture carries authority the firstborn. But there are different roles for men and women. God's created order tells us something about himself. There are roles within the Trinity. Each member is equal in value, image, dignity, personhood, godness. Each one is God. But as God... They have different roles that each one plays. The Trinity honors the role of the other by playing their, his specific role as Father, Son, and Spirit. And when, when, that, when that play, that, that deference and honoring is in play, we see the wholeness of the glory of God. So when God calls men and women to walk in this way, it's because a greater glory needs to be seen. God's created order went like this. Man, woman, creation in terms of authority. When Eve was deceived and transgressed, the order got reversed and turns upside down. The creature, the serpent, rules over the woman who then rules over the man. In God's redemption, he's putting that order back in place for us to experience the blessing of that order. And he wants the church to demonstrate that order. God is using the church to shine the light of his glorious gospel truth. You can be restored to God's blessed order. Even better than his original order. When men and women embrace their restored orders of relating with one another, the gospel light blazes for a worried and confused world. This is what's called, what we, we have used the word, I, I don't use it enough because it's just big, complementarianism. It's a lot of syllables. But the word complement is in there. Our views on men and women and their roles and functions within the church, we, we call complementarian. And our, our roles within marriage is complementarian. We complement one another as God calls us to walk that out. But in our cultural moment, we value complementarianism. To see it expressed in order to see the glory of God in all things. That's why we seek 
complementarian relationships within the home and within the church. Now, sadly, there seems to be one of two camps to come down on in applying these verses. What does it mean for us? We can have a strict literalness that says women don't, te- women don't teach anything. And if a man is even close to being present, you have to stop everything, evacuate the men, and then the woman can talk to the other ladies. Now, on the other side is the strict liberalness. That, oh no, that was the old covenant stuff, that was archaic, just an Ephesus problem, uh, women can do everything a man can do. We have to, we, we fall in the middle here. What do we do with these verses? I think what these verses do is communicate a freedom to women to lead in the church. Now, I, my younger days, being impressioned by other categories, I was a literalist when it came to this. And by God's gracious love toward me, he's helped me adjust my perspective on this issue. The prohibition to not teach or exercise authority over man, remember, taking the two together, is a prohibition on the authority that calls the church to get in line with the truth. Preaching. That's it. This is to be relegated, this preaching is to be relegated to the elders slash pastors. I use elder pastor, same concept. So there's not, we don't have elders and then pastors, we have elder pastors. So I'm going to use both as we walk through this, but hear the same thing. The elders preach from an authority given by the Spirit to exhort and admonish from the Scriptures. Paul tells Timothy that in 2 Timothy 4, 2, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Look, reprove, rebuke, exhort. Those are forceful words, right? So this act of preaching, what what this does, and what I'm seeking to do for us all, I'm spending all week doing this to myself in preparation to be able to come to us saying, here's the plumb line of God's truth. Get in line with it. And the authority that you hear from that is, get in line with it. A fatherly, let's do this, let's snap to attention, let's get to action, let's follow Jesus. Amen? Amen. Now that's weird when a woman does it, right? It feels a little off. We've heard women preachers, and they say some really good stuff. But when they call to action like that, it's a little different. Because God says, by the order of of how men and women are the created order, he gives that authority to the man. And if the woman tries to grab onto that authority, it messes with that order. And people feel it. We kind of understand. Feels a lot of place. So listen, preachers proclaim that plumb line of God's truth. And we function within God's authority. His delegated authority to call unbelievers to repentance and to call believers to sanctification. And by God's design, this function of pastors is for the pastors, for the men who are called to be pastors. Please note this. The prohibition, like don't teach. We're getting ready to go to chapter 3 about overseer. Who are supposed to be the, the elders in the church? Not every man is called to be an elder. 
Not every man's called to be a pastor. So not even every man is called to do what I'm doing. So this isn't a blanket statement, like all the men get to do this, and all the ladies need to be quiet. No, because not every man's called to do it. When elders do this authoritative ministry, and I think there's another aspect of preserving what we're doing. It's preserving the truth. But listen, think about it this way. When elders do this authoritative ministry, we are walking the perimeter of the church. We're walking the perimeter of the flock of God in order to guard the truth in the hearts of our people, our sheep, as well as to keep attacks away. So what God calls pastors to do is, hey, walk the perimeter, make sure that God is number one in our hearts, Make sure that the attack and falsities and, and, and the false teachings stay, where they, stay out of the church. So really, he's calling pastors to do what Adam didn't do. Adam didn't walk the perimeter of the garden. He didn't see that serpent and say, whoa, 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 get out of here. He didn't go fashion, he had authority over them. He could have taken it by the tail and just flung it somewhere, burn it, something. He doesn't do it from his own pride in there. What's this death thing? See, Eve wasn't, she wasn't gullible. Like, oh, okay. She must have blonde hair. Oh, this is okay. We're going to, okay, I'll take that. Okay, great. And all of a sudden she realizes, what did I do? She's not gullible. She really did want to be like God. So there was a desire in her that said, I really want to be like God. Now, here's the thing. We're, we're, we, in Scripture, in Genesis, we're told that God told Adam, don't eat of that tree. It's not recorded for us that God told Eve to not eat of the tree. God told Adam who was to lead Eve. and He didn't do it. So it started... <laughs> Oh, look, I can rail on the guys. <laughs> we have to lead, absolutely. We, we are to guard the truth in our own hearts, in our families, and in the church. Everybody has that responsibility. Again, different roles is walked out differently. But what God calls pastors to do is what Adam failed to do because he wants to preserve the truth for his people. So my, my, my joy... And my prayer every week is to lead you to living waters and drink of those living waters and say, I got everything. Where would I go? I got Jesus. This is everything. And I want to, and there are times when I need to say, hey, be, pay attention to this or pay attention to that. But you know, you know my heart. On the whole, I want us to see Jesus. Because when we see Jesus, everything is good. And when he's number one, everything is good. So what can women do? I would encourage the ladies not to get fixated on one prohibition, just like Eve did. Only one prohibition, one rule. One thing, Eve, you had one job. No, I'm teasing. Adam should have been there. Well, Adam, the, the scary part says she gave the fruit to her husband who was with her. He watched the whole thing. 
I should have invited Susie up here to give this part. <laughs> Which would be appropriate. And you're going to find that out. <laughs> what I would hope to communicate to you ladies is that there are a myriad of other opportunities available for you within the church to point to Jesus, all while preserving complementarian leadership in the church. Kent Hughes and Brian Chapel, I wanted to throw this in there just so we can understand what's happening. In their commentary, they said this, it must be noted that these instructions have nothing directly to say about teaching and authority in the marketplace or the academy or the public square. They are about order in the church. So there is a uniqueness about church that needs to be distinguishable. So when people peer in, they see something glorious. So here's my, my call to the ladies. Teach. You can't preach, you can teach. And there are, different, there are different ways and opportunities. And most of you ladies, you, you do this and you do it well and you do it with the disposition of your heart because I've been in small groups with you and you have, you have shared something and it's usually coming out this really timid way, but it's truth. And I can tell you the men in that room have gone, oh, she's right. I got to change something about how I'm thinking. Keep doing that. I have sweet ladies in this church that through the years have responded to a sermon and sent me an email. And it has been the most gracious, loving emails that have corrected my socks off. And I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful. I have, I have a wife that I bounce so much off of who helps me and refines and, and she brings scripture to bear on what I'm thinking or experiencing. She actually told me a book that I pulled a quote out of because she said, oh, and this, when we read in this book, I said, that's right, I gotta go read that book. I got a quote from it. Titus 2, verses three and five, Paul tells ladies, older ladies, teach the younger ladies. You have a mission field in front of you with younger ladies. That teach. Now, I... I know most of you really well. I trust you. There should be a moment that you're saying, hey, I kind of would like to do this with a group of ladies. What do you think? You're usually going to have me like with pom-poms going, yes, that's great. Can I do like some kind of, yeah, do it. Go. What can we do? We'll buy the books. We will do this for you. But that we, that's, a, that's a disposition, disposition of the heart that submits to the leadership to say, hey, thinking about doing this, what do you think? Teach what is good. That's your commission to teach. Now, there are, I think, opportunities for a woman to teach with men present. Don't think it's a, a hard line. I think it needs to be done with appropriateness. It needs to be done with wisdom and understanding. But listen, Acts, Acts 18.26 tells us the story of Priscilla and Aquila who took Apollos and said, hey, we need to explain something to you. So the teaching that a woman brings is an explanation and an unfolding of true concepts and scripture, which I think can be very, very appropriate. Again, under the direction of the leadership, seeking to maintain our roles as men and women. So you are to teach, ladies, and you are to lead. 
Look, this prohibition to not preach doesn't mean women can't lead ministry, lead ministry strategies, or lead ministry events. And I don't think that I don't think you're precluded from that. Or I don't think this prohibition means that you can't be part of decision-making components of church life. There are times that I've met with other men in the church, and we get to a point, and I've said, we need the ladies to come in, because we can't think through this very well. We're not seeing it. We need it. And we have had wonderful meetings of bringing the wives along to say, what do you think about this? How do we go through this? Let's hear from a different perspective. This prohibition does not mean that a woman can't lead in a gifting that leads others. And I would include worship in that. I think ladies who lead worship is one of the most beautiful angelic things ever, especially if they can sing. That's helpful. But got some ladies up there. Yeah! It's like, whoa. That's not edifying to people who are here. Years ago, pastoral staff meeting that we had, uh, the church that sent us over here, um, one of the pastors said, you know what? It's just God hears so much beauty when we all sing, even when we can't sing. And the pastor who was leading worship said, yes, I understand, because God has perfect hearing. We don't have glorified hearing yet. We need people who can sing. (laughs) I always remember that. It's like, that's really true and really helpful. (laughs) Uh, Ladies, there's, there's just a lot available. Paul describes the way this should be done. So complementarianism is preserved. It's with quiet submission. It's with respectful humility. That's what it is. Everybody's called to that. Man and woman called to that. And ladies, prophesy. 1 Corinthians 14.1, Paul tells the church, look, I desire that everybody prophesies. And that's not just for the men. That's for everybody. Ask God for dreams and visions and ask God to be a, a, a... to have a gifting that would bring a now component to what he's saying to our church. Oh, we, I would love more and more and more of that. It's, just, it's not a man-only gift. And what is also not a man-only gift is prayer. And I'm so thankful that we have so many ladies in this church that are prayer warriors. And their sword in prayer is a whole lot bigger than mine. And they wield that sword by the, by the grace and power of the Spirit, just like we're supposed to do. Ephesians 6 describes that. Ladies, pray. Now, women aren't supposed to go after these the same. They're supposed to go after these things the same way men are, with a holy humility. All right, the third, final point, which is also a pretty weird verse. In verse 15, we want to make sure that we're keeping the window clear so everybody can see this order to see God. The final verse can also trip us up because it seems like Paul is, is relegating women to what is the stereotype for women. Just be in the background, do what you're supposed to do, have the babies, and make me a sandwich. It's not what he's saying. If you continue to follow Paul's flow of thought, his concluding thought to women is reminding them of how Jesus shines through their role as women. It's interesting. Look at verse 15. Yet she, then he says, if they later on. Do you see that? Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue. 
what is going on? Commentators are trying to put this together, but I, I, I land with several of the others that I studied through this week, that helped my study this week. Um, this still, because of the flow of thought, that, that she could still be referring to Eve. Eve was saved. She became a transgressor, but she was saved through childbirth, meaning, remember Genesis 3.15, through her offspring would be the one to, to save and deliver God's people so she would crush the head of that serpent. Even though the order got reversed, Eve's offspring would end the curse and reorder the relationships. That's exactly what happened. This doesn't mean salvation comes through the act of childbirth, but through the act of one child being born. There's a definite article in the original language, the childbearing. That's why we can bring, conclude that it's, it's the act of one child being born, that would be Jesus. And when women, women embrace their roles and do what only women can do, no matter how much culture wants us to think that men can have babies, they can't. So by a woman doing what a woman does that only she can do, God's salvation is seen. Because all of us who have had babies, you know, that's a miracle. Absolute, utter miracle. And it reminds us of that one baby that was born that saved us all. When Paul switches to the they, he's addressing then the ladies of the church. And they are to brace, embrace their roles with faith and love and holiness, with self-control. Susan Hunt, she and Ligon Duncan wrote a book called Women's Ministry in the Local Church. Uh, in another chapter, she gave the best definition of submission I have ever, ever come across. But she says something about this verse here. Regardless of whether a woman ever births a child, her capacity to give birth reflects her life-giving mission. Oh, what a beautiful phrase. Every redeemed woman is called to have a life-giving ministry in God's covenant family. This ministry is not limited to our biologically reproductive years. We can be full of sap and green and still bear fruit in old age as we declare to others that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. Oh, what we would have, oh, please, God, grant us legacy legacy of the ladies of our church that will pass on gospel life and light and truth the third, fourth. Let's ask God for ten generations. Ten generations, God. Bless them all. And may they all follow you. And no, not one turn away from you. And reclaim the ones who think they have walked away. No. Oh that we would have that blazing glory of God's heart for his people. And look, I conclude by saying this, verse 4. This is why we operate in the roles that God's called us to walk in to experience blessing. But look, when people look in, they're going to see God's heart for them, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. There's one God, and there's one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. It's a glorious picture. And God, in his miraculous power, I went a little long today, I apologize for that. Eh, no, I don't. I take it back. I, I, what I hope 
as if this has been an answer to all of our prayers. I hope there's understanding. I hope that we still join together as the church to see Jesus in everything. Everything. Because he's worthy. He's worthy of everything. Let's pray. Lord, you're so wonderful. You're so good. I pray that we would just be filled with a vision of Christ that sustains us and it guards us. And God, we would have a tenacity about our relationships with one another that would look like us stirring up love and good deeds in every category, in every category. God, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray.